0: This is Steve Becker. I served as a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas for 26 years. Following that, I served in the state legislature for six years.
1: I'm Beth White. I worked with corrections for almost 10 years and currently I'm a sleep deprived nursing student.
0: And this is Cleared. Daughter, hello poopy. No, not on a
1: podcast. (laughs) What are you? That's my dad's beloved nickname, his favorite nickname.
0: (laughs) I can't believe you did that. Okay, I'm doing well. Beautiful weather today. It is, it's very pretty. I'm feeling good.
1: Do we have anything in the news? Well,
0: I really don't have any news items. I'm gonna start by the way we usually do is I checked today with the National Registry of Exonerations and they show the number to be three thousand two hundred and ninety-one exonerations since nineteen eighty nine, um, since our last uh, recording. I think they logged 10 um, additional or 10 new exonerations on their registry. Uh, Six of them uh, were murder convictions. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Were they Uh, all from the same county?
0: (laughs) No, they aren't. I've checked. uh, can't remember now. Two of them from Pennsylvania, two of them from New York, and uh, yeah, and then... The others were separate or single convictions, but yeah, I got I was a little concerned this number that I just gave the number that they show today, I think is lower than the number I reported in our last episode, so I'm somewhat confused as to how the number can drop
1: well, but I think that's an interesting segue to what I was going to mention is I had a news alert pop up today about Adnan Saeed.
0: What's going on with Adnan?
1: He is of the serial podcast, the one that started podcasts for me about um, the 90s murder of his ex-girlfriend, Homaine Lee, who's developed into a podcast franchise and HBO documentary series. I mean, it's very well known for those of you who are into true crime. Um I had a, a alert pop up that they reinstated his conviction.
0: Never heard of such a thing. And, of
1: course, I immediately jumped on it. It was a CNN article, and it just said, this is a developing story. Please hang on while we update the article or something like that, which obviously drove me crazy.
0: Reinstatement of a conviction that had been exonerated.
1: After exoneration. Yeah. Um, I have since found out that the hearing where he they dismissed the charges and dismissed the case— the district attorney only provided Homan Lee's brother one day's notice, so he was unable to appear in person at that hearing. Okay, um, the, I,
0: again, who is he?
1: The victim's brother. The victim's brother. Yes. Thank you. So he had one day's notice to appear at the hearing. He was unable to do so. Um, he filed an appeal at the um, state level, and the court of appeals agreed with him that his rights were not met and so they are essentially from my understanding redoing that hearing so he can be present for it so everything i read that it's just a very temporary thing but that way he's able to be present for it so the talk about opening up wounds yeah for everybody involved kidding. i don't because at this point, Adnan had been released; they, uh, his conviction was overturned, and then there was that. I don't remember what the grace period is that the district attorney office has to file new charges. Do you know it off the top of your head? I do not. Forty days, or it, it's some very like finite number that had passed. They declined prosecution, and he was exonerated at that point. And then here we are, pulling that back, even if it's obviously we want the victims family to be involved but
0: that case is never over
1: Mm -mm. so that that was interesting speaking of exonerations going backwards
0: speaking of high profile cases when i first started my research for today's episode i said to myself which i often do talk steve how do i not know about this case yeah I mean, and then self answers by saying, Hey, dude, don't beat yourself up. There's,
1: There's three thousand two
0: hundred ninety one exonerations. I bet you don't know about all of them, yeah, so but yeah, this was a high profile case. Very. it has its uh, it has its own HBO documentary, as you mentioned for AdNom. Um, the book has been written. That's how it came to my attention. I think there's
1: been several books written about our exoneree. Yeah,
0: it was, was, uh, or is, remains a high-profile case. Uh, I've been asked more than once by our listeners as to how you and I choose... The subject matter for a podcast, which that inquiry always makes me smile a little bit because it infers that we have a system. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm not aware of one. No. We don't have a system, do we?
1: Well, and it's kind of sad because typically it's just stuff that's presented in front of us. We don't necessarily have to go searching for cases that we want to cover. They just kind of come to us. That's how common they are.
0: And that's how we arrived at this one. You and I exchanged texts. Well, who who do you want to profile in this next episode? we got an appointment with the studio. Who's our subject? And the response is, I don't know. Who do you want to do? And the response is, I don't know. Who to what you want to do? So I guess that's our system. And after in this case, after we exchange that, I don't often listen to the radio, but when I do, it's NPR. Yeah. KMUW from Wichita a news NPR outlet. And shortly after that exchange you and I had, I turned on to the NPR and there they are profiling an exoneree. So I immediately texted you and said, I found it. I found it. So that's how we found Daryl.
1: Well, and interesting enough, you, you said about how um, infamous this case is. I just have a couple little facts to add at the beginning. Um, because of Daryl Hunt and his case, North Carolina's Innocence Inquiry Commission is the first state agency in the country to investigate and litigate claims of innocence because of Daryl Hunt. And he's also partially responsible for the state's 16-year pause and executions. That all came from Daryl Hunt's case. So yes. it, it is very well known. And it will be well, well known to us and our listeners now, too. It will. We're yes. going to
0: keep his case alive. Okay. So, yeah, a book has been written. Beyond The title of the book is Beyond Innocence, The Life Sentences of Daryl Hunt. And it was only published a year ago. And it is written by Phoebe Zerwick, and she is a journalist who covered the case as it developed and kept following it for the next 20 years and I've already mentioned the HBO documentary um, but that was done in two, 2007 so um, I had to go searching for that a little bit to find it but The case is out of North Carolina, Winston-Salem, oftentimes referred to it as the Twin City. August 10, 1984, a uh, journalist who worked for the local newspaper was going to work early in the morning, um, like around 6.30 a.m. But she didn't show up at work. Uh, her coworkers got concerned. They did a very cursory investigation and found that her car was at work, but she wasn't. That caused some concern, uh, which prompted, uh, her boss to call the police. And, um, according to him, um, the police was certainly not concerned as he was. Uh, they basically told him that this is a uh, missing person's issue, and that's always a family matter and don't know if we'll get involved. Uh, but hours later, it was this happened early morning in like mid-afternoon,
1: I think 2 p.m.
0: Yeah, I was thinking 2 or yep. 2.30, the police arrive in the area of her work and start searching the area, and uh, they find the body. And uh, it, it was a terrible attack um, on the victim. Uh, she was nude from the waist down. She had been stabbed. 16 times. Um, the crime scene was pretty gruesome, and it was just a heinous, um, it was a heinous attack. Uh, so that's, uh, she was married at the time. Um, so yeah, that's about all I have about the case itself. Um, it happened, it was daylight when it occurred. So, that was a concern that this happened. The time that it happened, also the area in Winston-Salem where it happened, it caused a lot of concern.
1: Well, wasn't Um, she located like out in this park area in front of the newspaper office?
0: She was very close to her work area, but... I got the impression that she had somehow been concealed.
1: Well, I think there behind was behind the fence. Yeah, there was some, some sort of uh, log barrier that her body was located, so it wouldn't have been obvious if you were just looking out yeah, into the park, the sidewalk
0: yes. and the street. She wasn't visible from. So.
1: So, when did the police receive the phone call?
0: Which the initial phone call about she's not at work.
1: No, the phone call from the witness, air quotes. Yeah, that's a that happened in the AM hours, and I think that's what prompted the police to get out there. So the police get a phone call, and if I highly recommend the documentary, it's the Trials of Daryl Hunt. It's it's full of old news footage. Daryl's on it. I mean, everybody's on it. It's very well done. Um, And you can hear the phone call. It's very hard to understand, but he says, I'm Sammy Mitchell, and there's a girl in trouble. There was a black man jumping on her, is what the phone call said. And it was just odd that he said, I'm Sammy Mitchell.
0: Yeah, because that led the police to, to Sammy, Sammy Mitchell. Mitchell.
1: Which, wouldn't you know, as... The terminology goes was a frequent flyer in the criminal justice system, indeed. and not in a positive way indeed. He had a very long rap sheet um
0: and he was the best friend of Daryl hunt, yes, they were in I got the impression they were pretty much inseparable during the summer of of eighty four
1: yeah they both kind of grew up in similar instances where they didn't necessarily have any parental figures at all, and they kind of were raised in the rough areas of Winston-Salem.
0: Right. So, so the police find out
1: it wasn't Sammy. Well, yeah, they get this call saying, I'm Sammy Mitchell, this is what I saw, which is a weird way, I feel like, to start a call. And so the police obviously go to Sammy Mitchell Um, play him the tape. He says, I didn't do that. They play best friend Daryl Hunt the tape. He says, yeah, that's not Sammy. And then they're back at square one where they continually though, they've already, these are two young black youth who are in the criminal justice system as far as having criminal records. So that kind of narrowed them into Sammy Mitchell and Daryl Hunt, two best friends right away from the beginning.
0: And they make, yeah, and they find out who made the phone call. I think it was a Johnny Gray Yep. and why he would make the phone call and identify himself as Sammy Mitchell. Um, I never understood why he he did that.
1: Well, and he didn't necessarily understand either because – he um at one of the trials said that he did not he did not say i'm sammy mitchell he doesn't know where people got that from and then when pressed a little bit harder by defense and played the audio where it says pretty much the only thing you can hear from this audio is i'm sammy mitchell (laughs) he's like okay well maybe i did say that so the police narrow in on um daryl
0: daryl hunt
1: uh uh-huh and his friend sammy mitchell And they keep interviewing them over and over. And they're really pressing hard for Sammy Mitchell because Sammy Mitchell is very well-known by police. He's constantly in and out of trouble. He was on like a first-name basis with the DA just because he had been charged that many times. The problem was all the witnesses in the area, nobody said anything about a man with a mustache or a goatee. And Sammy Mitchell had a full mustache and goatee. And
0: he was also very heavy. Yes, And there was a witness that the person. Anyway, he did not meet the description that someone gave of a black person who was with the victim.
1: Yes. And so they both um, obtained counsel, both Sammy and Daryl. And Daryl tells his attorney the first time that um, the district attorney came to me and said he will give me $12,000 and let me out if I finger Sammy as the person who did it. And there's also audio of this on the documentary of him and his attorney talking about this. And he said, well, you're sure that's what he said. And he said, yeah, I could walk free. He wouldn't charge me with anything. All I need to do is say it was Sammy and go ahead.
0: Yeah. And that $12,000 figure comes from uh, the rewards that had been offered by, I think the, the paper she worked for. Yeah. And there were other organizations that, put money in as rewards that it totaled $12,000. So, yeah, if if Sammy, I mean, Darryl. if Daryl could provide information as to who did it, he may be entitled to
1: $12,000. Yep. And very quick into this story, we find out Daryl's true character, and he said, I couldn't take $12,000 to name somebody else. I'm not doing that. And he knew full very well that if he didn't do that, he was going to be prosecuted and charged with this case. And in fact, the district attorney said they would be pursuing the death penalty. So it was one of those situations, hey, $12,000, you walk free, you just name this man, or you don't, I'm going to charge you and I'm going to pursue the death penalty. And he still chose to not name his best friend and face the death penalty because he said it wouldn't have been right.
0: So Yeah, I like what you said about we start, get a true picture of Daryl, huh?
1: Yeah. And right. keep in mind, at this point, Daryl is 19 years old. He's
0: 19 years old.
1: Coming from a very hard background. He never knew his father. He knew his mother for two weeks before she died, and that was when he was older. He was raised by his grandparents, so he and in and out of trouble. So that's still his moral compass coming from the environment that he did.
0: Yes, and... The investigation, I got the impression that the investigation by law enforcement, they really wanted it to be uh, Sammy Mitchell. Yeah. And they, yeah, like you said, they applied pressure to Daryl. Come on, help us out here. Give us Sammy Mitchell. And like you said, he, he wouldn't do it. So as a result, they started focusing on Daryl. Yeah. And...
1: And remember that caller, they were able to find out the caller that said he was Sammy Mitchell. Well, it wasn't Sammy Mitchell. It was this Johnny Gray person who, as it so may happen, has a long criminal history, um, crimes involving violence. And when Johnny Gray was identified by the community or his name was put out there as the one who made this call, the community together thought collectively that he was the one to do the crime the black community specifically, because they were aware of Daryl Hunt. They knew his character. They didn't think he was that type of person. But when Johnny Gray's name came out there, the community latched onto it and they really thought he had something to do with it. Yeah.
0: This might be a good time for me to interject something I wanted uh, about the case. There are three individuals that grabbed a hold of Daryl and didn't let go for 20 years. And his old this exoneration is a result, I believe, of these three individuals. One of them was his court appointed counsel. The court appointed Daryl an attorney who had never tried a murder case before. And when I first heard that, I I kind of what's the phrase? Took it with a grain of salt because everyone every defense attorney who has tried a murder case had a first murder case yeah so he the attorney was young um didn't i think he said he'd been practicing for four years yeah and uh but but i don't think it's that big a deal because as it turned out this attorney mark rabel i want to give his name in this part podcast, Mark Rabel was court appointed to represent Daryl in his first trial and ends up representing him for twenty years. And he I think he never let go of this case.
1: And I think they also appointed Gordon Jenkins too. Another he was a little bit more experienced attorney, but still he had never had a murder trial. I before. got the
0: impression that they were from the same the same office. Office or same yeah. firm or, Anyway, they, yeah, they were co-counsel, and uh, but yeah, thanks to thanks to court-appointed counsel who just wouldn't let it go. Um, you know, so often when we have a loss like <laughs> Daryl's attorneys did, you you are told to let it go and move on. Uh, but this attorney—they did didn't. not. No. Uh, secondly. Uh, the uh, HBO documentary identified Larry Little, who was a city alderman, like a city councilman for Winston-Salem. Uh, and when Daryl got arrested, this councilman said, hey, I know that kid.
1: Mm-hmm. I, think I they, don't think he did it. I think they used to play basketball together, I played right? Pick up game basketball
0: yeah. with this kid. And no, he, so right away, Larry Little gets involved in the case as a city councilman, believing Daryl's innocence. He just wouldn't accept the fact that this could have been Daryl. Um, and again, Larry Little didn't let go of this case for 20 years. Um, and he's the one that organized all the community support, the whole free Daryl Hunt movement. They had protests and demonstrations, and um, all the black clergy joined together for Daryl. And then pretty soon it expanded, and white clergy um, joined the cause, and it was a really big deal. Daryl Hunt became a oh, what a, what phrase is used? It was, A cause celeb. He became a celebrity due to his legal action. Due due to his criminal case, he became a celebrity. So Larry Little just kept the fires burning for all this time. Number three, we have to give credit to Phoebe Zerwick. And uh, she is the one. Who covered this case initially for the local paper, and then she, the third person who would not let go, and she kept covering the case and she kept following it, and she did a uh, series of articles um, after his first, after his second trial, and uh, and I owe. Phoebe Zerwick, an apology, because when I was listening to that interview of her on the takeaway, um, she reached a point where she kept saying, as a result of my articles, the judge changed his mind. Due to my investigative journalists, this happened and that happened, and I'm going, man, you're World taking statements. a lot of credit, lady. And I thought, I wonder if the defense team feels like it's all owed to you. And then I watched the documentary, mm. and they, they say sure it do. is. They sure do. <laughs> they say it is. I took a snap judgment, and I said, okay, I think you might be exaggerating your importance a little bit, but no, we we can talk about what kind of impact her series of articles had in the case, and it's significant. And those series of articles is what led to the publication of her book. Uh, so yeah, I really wanted to mention those three people who refused to give up on Daryl Hunt.
1: So we're at the point where um, they. Can't go to Sammy Mitchell, so they're now on Daryl Hunt. Uh, They take a series of photo lineups to Johnny Gray. He's the one who called in saying he witnessed it. He's the one he said was Sammy Mitchell. And they show him to him. Of course, um, Daryl's photo is a Polaroid, and the rest of them are like slides. So Mm -hmm. obviously... Yeah. yeah.
0: Mugshots. whole All the others are holding that board in front of them with their name and everything.
1: And then there's Daryl Hunt, which is just a Polaroid. A Polaroid Obviously picture Obviously getting him Hunt. to stand out. Uh, Johnny Gray points at his and says, he looks good for it. I want to see him in a lineup. And so they put him in a lineup. And during the lineup, according to the detective's testif- testimony at trial, he points to Daryl Hunt and says, he's the person that did it. Um, Come to find out, he actually pointed to two people, one and four. The defense were made aware of this at the trial, and they asked, they recalled the detective to the stand, showed him the picture where it indicates on the back that yeah,
0: he had written
1: yeah one, one and, and four. four. And the detective's um, process on that was that no, it wasn't one and four. It was the number one suspect is four because Daryl Hunt was four, and the courtroom according to the documentary erupted in laughter because of how ridiculous it was how ridiculous this detective's testimony yeah. was and this the keep in mind this could be a capital case right here once they get to conviction they could choose to they they could choose to kill him and they're at a point in trial where they're laughing at the testimony of a detective that just shows you how far spread this is.
0: It's my understanding that Johnny Gray's identification of Daryl was after someone else had identified Daryl and it was in the news.
1: Where there was a speaking. news
0: article that says, suspect has been identified, Daryl Hunt. And then they ask Johnny Gray, can you identify?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, Daryl Hunt. Uh, The prosecution also called another witness, Thomas Murphy. He was a white male witness. Um, He had a slur of racial slurs that he included. And it also so happened to be that he was a Klansman. Um, He used a terminology in his testimony um, attributed to the Ku Klux Klan. He also had a gun in his car, and he testified that he saw um, Daryl and Deborah walking in the park together, and he thought to himself, what a shame, another white woman going down that path. It'd be awful if they had kids. He said this during the testimony in court, keep in mind. And if this was a situation, you have to imagine where the woman was being forced or there was something violent going on, you know he would go to his car and get a gun and and take care of what he felt needed to be taken care of. So to me, that brought his testimony into question. Um, They were so adamant on his testimony that after the initial crime took place, apparently they deputized him and had him sit out in front of the crime scene to look for possible suspects to come back to the crime scene. This Klansman, they deputized him and had him sit out there looking for possible suspects to come back by. W- what the process is there, I don't know. Um, come well, to find uh, out. Let me
0: add, let me give you some thought process on that. We look at Klansmen in Kansas a little different than they look at Klansmen in North Carolina. Yeah.
1: Come to find out, he he was not given the original photo lineup when the crime occurred. It happened months later, and he admitted during trial that he had already seen Daryl Hunt's picture in the newspaper being uh, charged with the crime, and then he made the identification that that was the person.
0: That's my mistake. I just said that that was Johnny Gray, who knew daryl hunt was the suspect this um, is that was this. thomas murphy yeah
1: and yeah. then they had it called another witness um there was a hotel nearby he was an auditor for the hotel and he said he believed daryl hunt to have came in and used the restroom at the same time and he saw pink suds in the sink and bloody paper towels in the trash can and he attributed attributes him to being daryl um Again, this is a white male identifying a black male. We've talked about how inaccurate cross-race identification is, so there's already issues with that as well. And the same thing happened, um, didn't identify him until he had already been identified in the news, and his picture was everywhere, so that doesn't amount to much for me.
0: We need to talk about the witness who was identified as Daryl's girlfriend. Because she becomes very important, or her testimony becomes very important, Lisa McBride. Yeah, she, her testimony, as I understand it, was just all over the place. And at one point um, in the documentary, someone says that she would just answer what she thought the individual wanted to hear. Yeah. And uh, that brought back a memory that I had. I had a witness that was that way in identifying the person she saw at the scene of the crime. And uh, first, when the state examined her, she identified one person. Well, she identified the defendant. When defense counsel cross-examined her, he got her to say that it was someone else. And we just kept going back and forth, back and forth. And, uh, yeah, she had no credibility at all. And I got the impression that was the same way, um, with this witness, she would make a statement. Well, they talked to her early in the investigation and she said, Daryl was with me all night. He could not have done it. Um, you know, therefore he had an alibi.
1: Oh, we're talking about Daryl's girlfriend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, I'm sorry, her name was Cynthia McKee. Okay. Lisa McBride was Johnny Gray's girlfriend.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm talking about...
1: Yes, I'm sorry, that was my fault.
0: And then after law enforcement arrests her on some outstanding larceny warrants, and after she's arrested, she said, no, Daryl Hunt confessed to me that he had committed the crime. So I didn't see any information where she got
1: keep in mind they had already offered Daryl Hunt twelve thousand dollars and to walk free if he fingered Sammy Mitchell so the yeah. credibility of her getting arrested and all the story her story changes is not very reliable yeah. to me. Speaking of not reliable, they had another witness and I have a I know her name but I'm not going to say it. the documentary says it it was a different time. Um, she was a 14 year old self-proclaimed. Sex worker, cocaine addict who allegedly saw the crime as well. Um, she went, they went, she, when she got on the stand, she denied everything that she had said to the police and her, um, mental health specialist got on and said she has a very hard time distinguishing reality from fiction. So that kind of set up that, but the uh, the prosecution went line by line through what she said, and then she would deny everything she said. So despite um, her retracting her total testimony, which was essentially that she ran into Daryl Hunt, Daryl Hunt said he killed the woman. They still got all that testimony out, even though, she denied having ever said any of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. She recanted and, and well, she said she didn't say those things. Yeah. But the jury heard it.
1: Yeah. The jury heard all of it.
0: And that becomes really important.
1: Which was kind of interesting to me because we're not talking, um, well, I guess almost 40 years ago but they were very free with her name they were very free with her picture she was a minor she was clearly i mean if she truly was a sex worker she was obviously being sexually assaulted and had that that kind of surprised me from a victim standpoint that all of her information was just out there and her picture was everywhere and wow that was that was sad to me yeah So that was essentially all of the state's evidence. They did have pubic hair and saliva, which they tested, and it did not match Daryl, but that didn't matter. It it was some sort of mistake. They didn't even worry about that. In fact, the community (laughs) asked about that. The team that had been brought together for Daryl's defense asked the police detectives if they had even tested it, and they said no because they're so sure that Daryl's the guy. They don't need to worry about it. Comes back, they tested, it doesn't match. Which, again, we've proven that not we've when we talked about how hair follicle analysis and that stuff isn't true science so that's not saying a whole lot but back in that time it definitely was meaningful yeah and i
0: was going to mention too we probably ought to say that this is 1984 and uh it is before uh dna had become um a player in the criminal justice system yeah uh, so, yeah, that that was the trial. Um the jury deliberated 3 days. And just to comment about that, um you assume at least I assume that when they begin deliberations, I think they often take an initial vote to see where they are. Yeah. So, if they deliberated three days, you know that they didn't have a unanimous verdict going in.
1: As the daughter of a public defender who very often tries criminal trials, I've always been told by my expert, my mother, the longer the jury stays out, the better it is for the defense. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Because longer, as long as they stay out, you know there, there they are, haven't agreed. Yeah. So they're out three days. And I think that leads me to think whether they returned a compromise verdict. Yeah. And I've seen compromise verdicts before where a jury will come back with guilty on two of the counts, but not guilty on all the others, but they're so interconnected that doesn't, that isn't even logical. I mean, if you think he did this, then you don't believe he did that? Come on. They're all connected. So, yeah, compromise verdicts are unfortunately the real thing. So what I think, based on my experience, happened in the jury is let's agree on a verdict of guilty but then we will say no to the death penalty.
1: Which is what happened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what they come back in. Yes, Daryl Hunt is guilty of murder and rape. So we move to the sentencing phase.
1: Which happens immediately, like and it, right they after say trial. say no
0: to the death penalty. Sentence. Sentenced to life in prison.
1: And in the documentary, Darryl said that he he knew what happened because he was told he when the jury walked back in the room, nobody would look at him. And so he knew then it wasn't going to be good for him. And then the, his trial attorneys are trying to prepare him. You know, this next this next phase is going to be whether or not you're put to death or not. And Daryl told him it doesn't matter because they already took my life by sentencing me. So he he at that point with whatever happened was resigned that that his life had been lost so they returned guilty on all charges they ordered him life in prison immediately after i mean dad talked about it there was a this was a huge huge issue in winston salem there was there was mass protests it was a hot topic everybody was talking about it everybody was divided about it It was a very big deal. And the Black community and the Black churches raised a significant amount of money and hired James Ferguson as his appeal attorney, which was kind of a, um, from my understanding, a hotshot law firm that specialized in these kind of cases. And they immediately proceeded on his appeals process, which is something that's so thankful for Daryl because we've talked about so many cases where people have nothing and nobody backing them and they're doing it on their own and Daryl was very fortunate to have his community stand stand beside him for 20 years when this whole process happened.
0: Yeah, there were two quotes that just grabbed a hold of me during that documentary, HBO documentary and, and we need to move on from this first trial. But I want to relate those before we do. The defense attorney made the stated the following, a black man charged with rape and murder of a white woman in the South. We knew that if we didn't prove someone else did it, he would get the death penalty. And of course, we all know the burden is on the state. It's not on the defendant. And
1: that was a quote from his defense attorneys. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And because, and the jury is told, by the judge, the state must prove the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant does not have to prove he's not guilty. I just wanted to point out that that's the law. Yeah. But in reality, no, this defense counsel says either we solve this crime or our client's going to get the death penalty. Yeah. we've The burden is on us. We've got to prove that Daryl didn't do it. So it's contrary to what the law says, but come on, it's reality. Yeah. It's reality. And then one other thing, when I was watching the HBO documentary, I had a, wait, what moment? and hit rewind and said, did he really say that? They showed an old news clipping of a press conference by the Winston-Salem chief of police. This is what he stated. Our objective from the very beginning was to make a charge. We have accomplished that. That's it.
1: Not find the guilty party? No. Just make a charge? No.
0: Make a charge. That was the goal. Well. And they found Daryl. They charged him. And it was like, well, that's it. We got it. And I don't know if you listened too much from uh, Phoebe Zerwick on uh, the takeaway. But she talked about another rape that occurred shortly thereafter. Six months. And the v- victim survived. Mm-hmm. And the victim thought that... The, the
1: victim's mother thought that these crimes were related.
0: I thought the victim did. Well, either way. Anyway, yeah, and so they came to the police and say, these crimes are so similar that I think they're by the same person. And the police didn't even want to talk to him about it. They didn't even investigate her case.
1: I'll take you one step further. This six months later, a very similar crime in the same park across the street from the newspaper this woman was abducted and raped at knife point early
0: morning hours she fought
1: the attacker away had his knife ran away started knocking on doors called police police told this is the same time as Daryl Hunt's being prosecuted police told her you don't want to pursue prosecution on this because it's his word against yours right she had the knife she had blood evidence she had DNA she had all of this physically on her person and the police told her, do not pursue prosecution on this. Coincidence that it's the exact same time as Daryl Hunt's trials beginning. It
0: would have interfered with
1: and she the she And she had the weapon. The physical weapon. So keep that in your back pocket because that's important for later. So immediately they start filing appeals. In 1990, they're granted a new trial.
0: And I, that is the first Woo-hoo. Yes. From the defense. Yes. Um, Daryl. Daryl. We got you a new trial. Not only
1: did he get a new trial, he was freed on bond, $50,000 bond, and went to live with the family who had a daughter named April, which they become very close friends, which that's important for later. Um, so they overturned the conviction. They ordered a new trial. Funny enough, the local DA didn't want to prosecute again. I can't imagine why. So they went to the attorney general. The attorney general, you know what? He didn't want to prosecute this either. So they had to call in, air quotes, special prosecutors from other counties to even touch the case because nobody wanted to prosecute it. They brought in uh, special prosecutors who reinvestigated the case. They did all the research, and then they came to Daryl and said, you know what, we have enough to prosecute you, but I tell you what, if you plead to second-degree murder, we will give you time served, and it can all be done. Now think about that. He has a life sentence. Incredible. A life sentence at this point, 19. He served five years. He's 24 years old still. He turns it down. He does. He could have walked I out that courtroom. It. He the said, next "I day. didn't do it." He's, I'm not pleading to something I didn't do, knowing full well he was going into. Uh, they, I did, will say, they switched counties to Catawba. I'm saying that wrong. They switched different counties because of how tense and how big of an issue it was in the Winston-Salem area. And he still knew this county had even less minority groups, so he was still going to go in front of a group of jurors that were not his peers. And he knew that there was very real likelihood of him being convicted again, and he still said, I'm not pleading guilty to something I didn't do. Again, this man is, what, 24, 25 at this point. And I
0: want to point out the reason that, the court reversed his conviction It's because he didn't like that the jury heard those statements that that witness had made. The 14-year-old? The that was all over the place. Yeah. I mean, they took the position the jury should not have heard her statements, her previous statements. You know, they had been recanted and all this stuff. But anyway, that was the basis
1: of the retrial or the, of like, the reversal, overtiring.
0: so we get to the second trial, and uh, so obviously they can't use that witness, but what have they got? Two jailhouse snitches who testify. Daryl admitted he did the crime when we were together in prison. I guess our listeners know how we feel about jailhouse snitches.
1: They also um, found somebody else named Kevin Coleman saying that he saw Deborah with two black men, but oh, he didn't have contacts in when that happened trying to set this whole thing up with Sammy and Daryl. And then the informants, I think one of them was um, Jesse Moore. He was convicted of robbery, and he wrote a letter to the DA. He's the one that reached out to the DA, um, also using racial slurs in the letter saying that, and also using Klan language in the letter. He was white, saying that uh, Daryl admitted that he's the one that killed Deborah. So that was their other one. At the second trial, there was over 200 spectators in the courtroom. Um, The second prosecutor at closing, it's very interesting because they have a jury member who is being interviewed on this documentary, and they talk about the prosecutor's closing statements. And in the closing statements, he displays pictures of Deborah's body at his crime scene photos Very graphic, very violent photos. He also displays all of her bloody clothing everywhere. And the jury person said that she really felt like she was Deborah. that the prosecutor like rolled up this rage inside her where she felt like she was Deborah, and it was her duty to make this right and how wrong it was and just stirred up all of those emotions. And then essentially um, Daryl's attorney got up on for his closing statements and said, what the prosecutor does is playing to your emotions. Look at the facts. There is no facts. There is no evidence. There is nothing. There is jailhouse informants. There is nothing here tying Daryl to this crime, but those emotions that the prosecutor invoked in his closing argument ultimately won out. And this time Darrell was convicted in just a few hours of the crime for the second time
0: yeah i think they made very clear that the well the closing argument by the prosecutor presented all these disturbing facts that were not an issue
1: well i think he laid out the imagine you're deborah and you're laying there and he's on top of you and you could feel your i think they used the word lifeblood flowing from your body and you know you're gonna die i mean very, very graphic, detailed imagery.
0: But all all the things that he addressed on his closing were not at issue. I mean, he that's didn't talk anything not about the fact. issue. The issue is who did it, and yeah. he didn't address that at all. He retold but the But he crime. successfully got that emotion so high that I think the jury was like, Oh, my God, we've got a."
1: we got to we, do something. We we've got to yeah. convict
0: somebody, and the prosecutor has presented us with somebody.
1: Yeah. So Jeez. second trial, convicted, same, same thing. Um, I, I can't remember if it was the attorney or if it was Daryl, but the quote afterwards was that stuck with me is racism is more powerful than facts. That, that one really stuck with me about the overall summary of the trial. So we're proceeding along, like Dad said. Um, that Congress, not congressman. The community, Larry, didn't give up on him. His defense attorney didn't give up on him. His appellate attorney, all of the black community at this point, didn't either, and they kept pursuing further and further with the appeals process.
0: They had, they set up a public, de- a public a defense, defense fund. fund. They yeah. were taking contributions. They had formed a defense team, which his trial lawyer was a member and uh, yeah. So
1: the second trial was in 1990 and 1993. They got their next um, hearing essentially come to find out there was lots of witnesses at the second trial that nobody could locate the defense. There was lots of defense witnesses at the second trial that could not be found for them to come testify. And it came out that the police possibly encouraged them not to testify. And so the appellate attorney filed a motion that the police uh, hindered the defense of Daryl by um, scaring off the witnesses. And they got a hearing in front of a judge at that hearing. We hear from Johnny Gray's girlfriend. Um, Johnny Gray is the initial person who made the call saying he was Sammy Mitchell. He's the original witness, the one that ID'd Daryl hunt. So, We hear from his girlfriend, and at that point, I don't think they're together anymore, but the girlfriend gets on the stand and says that Johnny Gray admitted to her that he lied about Hunt and that he himself was the one who was involved in the crime. She also tells a story about how when they were having a fight johnny gray stabbed the girlfriend and said you're gonna do me right or i'm gonna stab you like i did that other girl so pretty powerful testimony i would think they also have um another friend of johnny gray who said that he johnny gray told the friend his name's al kelly it's not necessarily important though that he told him, Johnny told him that he's the one who raped and anally sodomized uh, the victim and killed her too. So there's two people indicating that Johnny was the one involved. What was really big in this hearing was the defense was pressing for the SBI report, the State Bureau Investigation Report, which was thousands and thousands of pages long. It was essentially all of the... Um, investigation that the state did on the case that the defense did not have access to why they didn't have access to it dad you're gonna have to fill me on that
0: i don't
1: know they didn't have access to the state bureau of investigation report
0: well don't they have to provide that to them Uh,
1: you think so i think so isn't that don't we know a term for that when the defense or when Brady? yeah that's it Brady violation Um, so they pressed, they ended up going to the Supreme court asking for access to the state Bureau of Investigation report. This, uh, Supreme court obviously said, yes, give it to the defense. They did. And at that point they became aware that there was DNA involved. Bingo. They, the defense was told that the DNA was too degraded to be processed. And so it was. Null no point. Come to find out in these thousands of pages of document, not only is there DNA, but it is very well preserved.
0: And it had never been tested. Correct. It sound, I got the impression that they had sent it to the crime lab, maybe, but it was never tested.
1: It was preserved. It was not degraded, as the state had told the defense. Right, right. Um, and they were aware of this at the time of the second trial, where DNA was very much a thing. They could have tested it at the second trial, but they chose not to, and they told the defense that it was degraded. Where the miscommunication lies there, I'll let you decide. So they become aware of this DNA evidence, and obviously they want to pursue testing of it.
0: And this DNA evidence is semen. Yes. Yes.
1: So... You think no big deal, right? Test the DNA. If the DA is right, it'll be right. The DA fought tooth and nail not to test the DNA. They did not want any part of DNA testing. Ultimately, at that hearing, the judge ruled against the defense for a new, new trial, but did order the DNA to be tested against Daryl Hunt. So they lost on a new trial, but hey, they won on this DNA testimony. So that was in 93. In October of that year, his attorney got a call saying that they tested the DNA and that Daryl was excluded from being the provider of the DNA.
0: Another, woohoo! we did it, we did it, you've been excluded.
1: So you're thinking, okay, great, DNA says it's not him. The whole case behind the uh, states is that he's the one who raped and killed her, so we're done deal. And it's very, well, they filed the motion in front of the judge for a new hearing. Um, they got the hearing. The judge determines that the DNA evidence is not to the level where he deserves a new trial.
0: It was the judge determined it's irrelevant.
1: Yeah, he could have still been there watching. He could have been he a part of the He could have crime. been the
0: one who killed her and, and just, someone else raped her. Yeah,
1: it's just DNA inside of her. Just because he's not the one that put her there didn't mean he didn't kill her. And... Why I say that first is it's very heartbreaking because you see in this documentary, you see his attorney, his original criminal defense attorney, the one that had never tried a murder trial before going to him and saying, okay, this is what I suspect is going to happen. They can't deny you. At the very least, they're going to give you a new trial for this DNA evidence. There's no way they could not give you a DNA trial. You know, this is going to, we're going to get the hearing results on Thursday. You know, we need to decide where you're going to go. You're probably going to get released and come to find out they deny him a new trial. And it's just heartbreaking
0: the dna evidence that excluded daryl hunt as a contributor is found to be irrelevant amazing amazing
1: and interesting enough they also tested against johnny gray and sammy mitchell because they figure one of these three guys is it and they're all in it together but they all were excluded as being the providers of the semen so that throws so a huge there went wrench. another woo-hoo. Um, like I said, it's heartbreaking because you see the interaction between Daryl and his attorney in the, um, I don't know, the visitation room with glass, and you could see the hope in his eyes, and then the next thing you find out, that they're denied the hearing. And Daryl says um, it wasn't as hard for him because he became immune to being disregarded, which I think that is just like... Oh God, that statement just—you know what I mean? It didn't bother him because he's always the documentary
0: does such a good job uh, showing the toll this is taking on defense counsel. Oh my goodness, that defense counsel! I was just
1: wait—I was just going to get to that. So the next process is they go to the supreme state, the state supreme court, and that happens the following December in ninety four. Um, and they're waiting on the opinion They have really high hopes and 4 three, they lost and they show the, the attorneys and all in this office to Gary, Le- Larry's in there, they're all in this office together and they're calling Daryl to let him know that they lost at the state Supreme court level. And Daryl's like, well, just tell everybody, thank you for working so hard. The line cuts. And then it shows all these grown men in this room, just sobbing because they're so upset. They were so sure at some level somebody has got to catch this.
0: What makes the documentary so powerful is they have so many uh, real time yes. footage because they had been, cameras had been following Daryl Hunt in this case for 10 years. And they were, yeah, they were recording all of this. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: So they tell Daryl, you know, don't worry, we're still going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We still have options. We're going to keep going. Um, meanwhile, Daryl's in prison and he talks a little bit about how horrific of an experience that was about how the white supremacists were very much not in favor of a black man killing a white woman and how he constantly had to watch his back. He also talked about how he felt, or was told that the guards had a hit out on him in prison. So prison's not a good time for him. Meanwhile, just to keep that in the back of your heads. The U.S. Supreme Court decision comes out in October of 2000, 2000, I think. Is that right?
0: I'm not sure. I think I wrote
1: wrote 20, but that's not right. It must be 2000. Um, So that's six years later after the state. So here's another six years lost. The Supreme Court ruling denied his motion again. So there's another avenue lost.
0: I I think the next step in our story is that at this point, Phoebe Zurich writes these, a series of articles, eight, eight eight articles that appear for in the next eight days. And they have a huge impact on this case.
1: Well, and I think it's so interesting is because they had her write them. Initially, they were writing stories about the case for the defense says this, but the state counters with this. And it was more just accurate reporting where this time they wanted her to take an investigative report. They wanted her to go out and investigate the case. They originally gave her six months. It ended up taking more than a year for her to get everything straight and investigate on her own. But she didn't just present what was being presented in court. She presented all of the, um, falsehoods in the case and all the wrongs by the uh, district attorney. She just outlined them as facts and let people decide. And at that point, it became not only a rallying cry for free Daryl Hunt for the black community, but also the white as well, because they were seeing the true injustice that was happening. And at that point is when we become aware of Willard Brown. Willard Brown was the individual who was identified as the rapist from the crime that happened six months after Deborah's murder. That's the one we had talked about where the woman was raped at knife point. She was able to get away. She got the knife. She ran. She went to police and police discouraged her from prosecuting because it was his word against her. The mother of her, of the victim, actually reached out to Phoebe and said, I've always thought these cases were tied together. It's just weird. I just wanted to give you this information. And Phoebe decides to print it. Um, there was actually, she told the defense. The defense gets super excited about the idea of, you know, this is a very real possibility of a suspect for this case. And then it turns out he was incarcerated at the time of the commission of the crime. So they kind of let it go and then they come back to it later and they were aware that the date that she saw, Phoebe saw, where he was incarcerated, it was a projected release date above October of the year of the crime. Well, in all actuality, he had been released much sooner than that because people have good time, they get out earlier, there's prisons are overcrowded, they get out earlier. So he was in fact out in the in the world in Winston Salem during the commissioner's crime. So he was a very real suspect for this crime.
0: Yeah. And what you just narrated for our listeners is why I felt initially she really did yeah. this. Yeah. She really changed the whole case with her journalism. You know, my initial reaction was, yeah, come on.
1: So it goes a step further. There's this series of men that are behind Daryl Hunt that will not give up on him because they know his character. So they take, they've already lost at the Supreme Court level. So I can't remember who it was that said it, but he's like, let's just run blind DNA hits and see if we get, or let's just run the DNA blind and see if we get a hit. So they're literally shooting for fish, you know, in a barrel. I guess that's not the right wording, but.
0: It hadn't been entered the DNA had not been entered into the, the state database. database, which it had been checked to see. Was it Daryl Hunt? No, it wasn't. Hunt. Was it Hunt, Sammy Mitchell? That was the,
1: no. Was it Johnny Gray? No. And that's the extent of the DNA. So they ran it and they get a hit. And guess who the hit is? Willard Brown. Get out. The person who committed the exact same violent crime six months later. So they talk to Willard, they present him with the DNA, and he immediately admits and says, please apologize to Daryl Hunt. Wow. And that was all because of Phoebe's reporting. So like Dad said, she really did, she she changed the course of this case.
0: Yes, she did.
1: Interesting enough, so... There was the rape that happened six months later that Willard did that ended up tying him to Daryl. At the time of Daryl's second trial, all the evidence in that rape case, the original rape case from Willard, was destroyed. I thought that was interesting timing. So every bit of evidence from Willard's rape case six months after Deborah's death, at the second trial, they determined that was the appropriate time to destroy all that evidence. Just interesting. So the entire community of Winston-Salem is pressing for Daryl's release at this point. Everybody is aware they have identified um, Willard Brown as the person that Willard Brown has admitted to the crime. Um, And the DNA delays release of Daryl because he needs to do some more investigation. So there is this huge outcry in the community. I did fail to mention, after the Supreme Court denied the motion for the new trial for Daryl, he ended up marrying April, who was the daughter of the person he was staying with while he was out on bond. So they ended up getting married. And And I
0: I wanted to mention that now that we had the DNA, we go back to the very beginning when the defense counsel says... We have got to prove who did this. Yeah. The defense has the burden. We've got to solve this crime.
1: And they're still posturing like, well, he could have been a part of this crime. He could have been there watching. He could. He. he still could have been a part of this crime, even after Willard Brown had been identified, admitted to the crime, and told, asked for Daryl to apologize to Daryl. The, the, it's not the defense. The state is still saying, well, he could have still been a part. We need to investigate more ludicrous. And this point, um, Daryl's been in prison for 20 years. He went in when he was 19. So there's that Christmas Eve 2003, which I think is timely Christmas Eve hunt is freed. They ended up letting him out on Christmas Eve of that year of 2003. Um, The following year, February 6th of 04, that was the day that they would find out whether or not he would be exonerated or whether or not they were going to pursue prosecution against him. And I think it's kind of interesting because it seems like all parties are lined up for him to be exonerated, and then they call uh, Deborah's mother wants to speak at the trial, and not the trial, the hearing, and she gets on stand. Essentially, says you're making a big dis- mistake. Daryl clearly did this crime. You're going to let an, a guilty man go, and then they give Daryl the opportunity to talk, and he just turns around and he faces the um, victim's mother and says. I'm I'm sorry if it's hard for you to believe, but down from the bottom of my heart, this is not something I did. I pray for you every day. I can't imagine how... I mean, just very respectful, very um, compassionate conversation that he had with the victim's mother about it, which I thought was also telling of the type of character he is. So after that, they the judge announced that they were going to dismiss the case with prejudice. So Daryl was exonerated and he was free. Finally, the woo Yeah. By After defense. 19 years.
0: Yeah. This was it. Yeah.
1: Um, Willard Brown ended up pleading guilty and he was sentenced in December of 04 to life in prison. And interesting enough, Johnny Gray, the one who made the initial phone call saying he was Sammy Mitchell, he um, died in prison because he was incarcerated for killing an elderly man. So he ended up spending the rest of his life in prison. I would love to say this is the happy ending and Daryl and April were free to live the rest of their lives. Daryl always said he just wanted a normal life. He didn't want anything. He just wanted to go to work possibly for the city like his grandpa did come home to his family. That's what he wanted. Unfortunately, that's not how this story ends for Daryl.
0: But before we reach the end, but after his release, as you mentioned at the beginning, he becomes this, national, at the national level, an advocate for wrongfully convicted individuals and for criminal justice reforms. You mentioned the two bills that were passed at his, uh, due to his lobbying. Uh, There's this commission formed, a state agency, which is somewhat similar to a conviction integrity unit at the local level. But this is a state agency that says, if you, to the inmate, if you are innocent of the crime, let us know and we will investigate it. Yeah. And as a result of that, there have been 15 exonerations by this commission because as of- a result of what daryl did upon his release i mean he left such a strong legacy which brings us to the final few paragraphs go ahead
1: um so the book that dad was mentioning that phoebe wrote what was the name of it again I always lose Beyond the, innocence. Beyond innocence. So that's re-examining Daryl's life after he was exonerated. And she does a wonderful job. I need to read it. I haven't read it, but I'm going to read it. Um, the articles I've read where she talks to Daryl's friends. And they say that there was always warning signs after he was exonerated. He just felt this overwhelming sense that his community did so much for him that he had to repay that. So he would say no to nothing. Every speaking engagement, Everything. Anything anyone asked of him, he would do it because he felt he owed such a huge debt to his community, and he needed to pay that back. Um, he ended up being rewarded, I think, a little o- under three hundred or a little over three hundred and fifty thousand from the state, and I think one point six million from the um, city. And these numbers were made public. He went back to the same area. He grew up in and people would ask for money from him or people would abuse the situation and try and get money from him and he would never turn anybody down because he felt like he couldn't and this cycle continued he did lots of amazing things but his friends said you could see there was tears in him where he was just extremely overextending himself he, and I think it's a very interesting because we, we don't hear a lot about this, but they talk about how he would go to every single speaking engagement and talk about what happened to him, and it would just be reopening that wound, that PTSD, that would just flood all those emotions back. And in fact, he was in Washington, DT, D.C. getting ready to speak somewhere, and he saw a green light at... Um, the hotel he was talking about as part of the decoration and he nearly had a panic attack or did have a panic attack probably panic attack because it reminded him of the green light and the booking when he first was arrested for this. So he's just, he is living with a lot of demons. He is not taking any time for himself to heal those demons. Um, he, go ahead.
0: I just want to interject at the time of this incident where he's in Washington, D.C., Something triggers his PTSD. The green light triggers it, and uh, he has this panic attack. And who's with him? His original trial counsel. Yeah. Is there to? Is there for him?
1: Help to comfort him. Yeah. 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 So this, this kind of cycle of overextending himself and from my understanding is not getting any kind of help with the demons that he's suffering from for the 20 years of abuse and all the horrible things he suffered. He ends up um, allegedly turning to cocaine as a way to numb himself. And in 2016, he went missing. There was a missing um, announcement that went out over the Winston-Salem area, and Phoebe said she just knew in her heart that something awful had happened and come to find out he had borrowed a car and um, was found deceased in the car from a single gunshot wound to his stomach. He also, I believe, um, had was suffering, suffering from terminal cancer at that point. Um, there's some sources that say he was and there's some saying it was a cover-up to hide the drug use but it doesn't matter either way Um, the gunshot wound was ultimately ruled to be suicide so he was deceased in 2016 just what 11 years after his exoneration
0: and phoebe helps us uh, phoebe zerwick helps us imagine the situation she said then this occurred his uh, the self-inflicted gunshot occurred in front of a rundown Street shopping mall. mall. Yeah, it's just so sorrowful.
1: It's very, very sad that he didn't get the resources he needed, and he felt this um, constant pressure to give back to his community, which he did. He did. His legacy is so strong. There are so many people today that have freedom because of how hard he fought. I have
0: so much admiration for Daryl Hunt.
1: Me too. What a guy. Yeah. Yeah. He never, um, at least as far as all the interviews go, he never harbored any kind of animosity towards the uh, prosecutors or Willard Brown. He said everybody makes mistakes. He's moving on. He's not going to dwell on that. He's going to move vic- on and live his or life. Or his victim's, victim's mother yeah.
0: who keeps saying, you're guilty, you're guilty.
1: Yeah. And at the end, what I'm going to say to kind of close it at the end of the HBO documentary is the original interview that the police had, the police detectives had with 19 year old Daryl and they're asking about if he prays and who he prays for and what he prays for. And it, he says he prays for them to find the right guy and for innocence to, I mean, it's essentially he's just saying how much he prays for the true perpetrator, the kind of the crime to come forward and for the family. And then he's like, well, do you pray for yourself? And he's like, well, yeah, I do. But it just, again, shows even at such a young, immature age and given the environment he was, how strong his moral character was and how amazing of a man he was. And that, is the end of this episode so sadly it doesn't have the happy ending i would like but still his memory and the legacy he leaves behind is strong if you have any questions comments concerns or want to suggest a case you can reach us on cleared pod on facebook or cleared pod at uh, instagram and until next time thank you
0: thank you so much to our producer yes chris and thank you for the use of this studio um yeah, we uh, we enjoy bringing you uh, bringing you these stories. So, thank you very much.